0: Midtown Detroit Studios of WDET. This is Detroit Today.
1: We'll talk today about a new report that shows how the pandemic worsened inequalities among our public school districts and children in Michigan. We'll also meet the new president of the state school board, Pamela Pugh, and it was the first week of Democratic control in Lansing. Would they get done? It's all next on Detroit Today, but first the news from NPR. 1019 WDETM, your host, Stephen Henderson, and thanks for tuning in. Busy show today. We're going to talk uh, education on the bookends, both at the beginning of the show and at the end. And in the middle, we're going to talk about the first week of democratic control in Lansing, the bills that were passed, the power that was divvied up, and where we go from here. So glad that you are with us on this Friday in uh, January of 2023. We're going to start here, though. The pandemic was really hard for everybody, but one particular group of people was especially hurt by all of the distancing and inability to go and be with each other, and that's students, and particularly low-income students. Without access to a lot of the necessary resources that were already limited for these students, uh, they had to do even more on their own, and they had less support. The consequences of that are now becoming really clear. Education Trust Midwest, an education research and advocacy organization, reports that Michigan school districts with high concentrations of students from low-income families saw those students lose the equivalent of about a year or more of learning. Students are also struggling on tests. In fourth grade reading, the state ranks 43rd and is projected to remain there until 2030. The same report predicts that Michigan's academic rankings will decline or stagnate by 2030 in areas like math and reading. So what are the solutions? What are the remedies to all of this? Instead of continuing to exaggerate already existing inequalities, how should the state, how should schools, how should communities work to close the gaps? And how are teachers and students and families recovering from the ways that the pandemic upended their lives? As I said, later in the hour we are gonna talk with the new Michigan School Board President, Pamela Pugh, about what she thinks are the biggest issues that are facing Michigan students and what the board's priorities are. But before we get there, we want to unpack some of these questions with Lori Higgins. She is head of the Chalkbeat Detroit Bureau. Uh, Lori recently wrote a piece titled, Michigan Students Are Struggling. A new report calls for fair funding to reverse the slide for Chalkbeat Detroit. Lori, welcome back to Detroit Today.
2: Hi, Stephen. Thank you for having me.
1: So let's start here. It's been almost three years since the pandemic hit. How do we know Uh, about how students in K-12 are doing uh, in Michigan. What do we know about what we lost?
2: Uh, Well, what we know is pretty uh, sobering, actually. Um, I mean, we know that everyone across the country, students across the country declined. um, But in Michigan, um, students declined at a a rate that was faster than the the national average, um, according to the report that just came out this week. Um, students were struggling in Michigan before the pandemic. I mean, I think that's important to note. Um, and and so when we see these kinds of declines, it's even more unsettling because students, particularly as you as you noted, students from low income homes already had a a a, a hill to climb, um, and and now that hill is is just even you know more difficult for them to get over. Mm.
1: So how bad are the inequities? That we're talking about, as you said, these were students who already were suffering from a real, a real gap. We've been talking for a really long time in Michigan about that gap and and how and whether to address it. But how much worse did the pandemic make it?
2: Um, well, we we did see gaps increase. Uh, between uh, you know students overall, or I guess you could say between white students and black students, between white students and Hispanic students, we also saw the gap increase between um, you know students from low-income homes and also students who were who come from wealthier homes. Um, you know those those gaps have been around for forever, um, and and you know the the fact that they have been increasing um, is. Is Again, I I keep going back to the unsettling. It's it's very unsettling. This this is not the direction that, that, you know, schools should be going in.
1: Yeah. Um, What are schools doing to try to mitigate all of this? How are poor school districts, districts where the parents and students and teachers need more resources?
2: What are they doing
1: to try to address this?
2: Well, I'll, I'll say that so uh, COVID, the federal COVID relief money, um, and and districts like Detroit got a, a huge amount of money. They they received about um, 1.3 billion dollars in COVID relief money. That that funding has been helping districts provide additional tutoring for students. It's also helped them provide more mental health services, and and that is really key to this discussion um, because we can talk a lot about academic improvement and the need for it, but that's not going to happen if we don't address the mental health issues that existed before the pandemic and and got worse. Um, You know, districts are, uh, you know, trying to provide more learning time for students. Um, But I will say all these efforts have been um, challenged by um, labor issues. Um, You know, in in Detroit and and in many school districts, uh, there are only so many people that you can hire to you know, provide these, um, this, this extra help that students need. And, and a lot of districts are, are, are leery about hiring additional people because they know that that money is going to run out at some point and, and all the federal COVID relief money does run out at the end of 2024. Um, and so they don't want to be in a situation where they have hired all these people and then they're dealing with, you know, a, a financial uh, crisis.
1: So let's go back just a bit and talk a little more about the mental health uh, dimension of this that you that you mentioned. Talk more about what those mental health issues are and what kind of problems are showing up in in schools because of them.
2: Well, when you talk to students, they talk a lot about how the being online for such a long stretch of time makes them feel really isolated. Um, being in front of a computer, you know, eight hours a day or six to seven hours a day was was very difficult. Um, and then coming back into a an in person setting um, when a pandemic is still going on, um, and and you know, with the academic struggles that they're having, have, has has been really uh, difficult for them. Um, when I, we we published a uh, a Q and A Q&A with a, a high school student who served as a student rep on the Detroit school board. Uh, recently, and and you know, she talked about how you know, three years into this, like there are just days that you know, and she's a student leader. There are just days that she just doesn't want to get up and go to go to school, yeah. and and she's talked to many other students who feel the same way. I, I don't think we can, we fully grasp what the pandemic has done for young people, um, and and that is really concerning. Yeah.
1: Uh, I'm talking with uh, Laurie Higgins. She is the Chalkbeat Detroit bureau chief. Uh, She recently wrote a piece titled, Michigan Students Are Struggling, A New Report Calls for Fair Funding. To reverse the slide, uh, we're talking about uh, the effects of the pandemic and all of the disruption in schools. Uh, the consequences that uh, we're just beginning to really understand, and how much greater those consequences appear to be for students who come from impoverished backgrounds. Uh, we want to hear from you as well during the conversation. Why do you think Michigan students are struggling so much compared to their peers in other states? That's another thing that we're learning is that uh, Michigan is continues. I should say, to lag behind. Uh, Are you a parent who has sent your kid to school through the pandemic? Uh, Let us know how you navigated all of this. Let us know how your children did over this time, this last almost three years now, uh, since the pandemic really began to disrupt things. Uh, Are there new challenges that you've noticed that have emerged as we get back to Quote unquote, life as normal, uh, especially in schools, a really slow process getting back to everyday in person uh, education in every district. As always, the number here on the phones is 313 577 1019. That's 313 577 1019. You can also go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today, and we can uh, work you into the conversation that way. Uh, Lori, I. Uh, had a conversation with Lieutenant Governor Garland Gilchrist this week uh, and and I asked him about this report in Lansing that has been gathering dust, I think, for several years. We, we went to all this effort to document the inequalities in funding in Michigan mm-hmm. and to document uh, the ways in which to make things uh, equitable. Not equal, but equitable uh, to take into account uh, the poverty that uh, that affects so many districts. Uh, I asked him whether with Democrats in charge of both houses of the legislature and uh, the governor's office, whether that might get more attention, whether we might uh, see the needle move. I, I want to have you address uh, that report and what it said we needed to do and whether you think uh, there's an opportunity now to actually lean into those recommendations?
2: Sure, so the report recommends a a weighted funding system and and this has been recommended by uh, a couple of other um, advocacy groups over the last uh, few years. So how that would work is if if you look at the example of um, students from low-income homes, um, a district would receive 35% to 100% depending on the the number or the, the percentage of students who are from low-income homes, they would receive 35% to 100% more in per-pupil funding for each of those students. Um, that would be much higher than, than Michigan already does. So Michigan already provides some additional funding for uh, students from low-income homes. It's about 11.5%. So this would this would be a, a big jump for, um, for most school districts. Um, now, the argument will be made, well, these districts that have large percentages of low, low-income homes already receive additional federal, you know, Title I funds, and, and they do, for sure, and that does provide some additional funding for schools, but that, that money is um, very targeted, and and there's not a whole lot of flexibility around how schools can spend that money. Mm-hmm. Um, so your your question about the chances of this happening, um, so the, the report suggests that, you know, the state used, about three billion dollars in the, the the school aid fund right now to uh, go to a weighted funding system now. Um, however, uh, there there's no recommendation on how to sustain that, and and so the big question is if Michigan went to a, a weighted funding system, and it could cost about three and a half billion dollars, mm-hmm. um, that a year, um, that. How how do we fund it? You know that that money doesn't just come out of nowhere, and um, there's so much talk right now about reducing taxes, and um, you know there aren't a whole lot of um, sort of ideas out there about how to increase school funding at this level and not increase taxes. Yeah, yeah. But I think that's going to be a huge barrier right. um, when these these discussions. You know, happen.
1: as always, it's it's hard. Uh, to get anywhere in this state and many others uh, once you bump up against the reality of the need for money and more money than we already spend uh, on on education. Uh, again, 313 is the number here on the phones. You can also go to Twitter and hashtag us, and we can include you in the show that way. Let's start today with Cleveland in Detroit. Cleveland, what's on your mind?
3: Uh, thanks for taking my call. Sure. We've got MEEP scores and, and M-STEP scores for decades that show that the children aren't reading at grade level. So why isn't there such a strong emphasis on reading in the early years? Like how many hours do the kids in first, second, and third grade practice their, style, their sounds, their vowel combinations? And and, and is, there, is there a strong emphasis on reading in the state
1: of Michigan. Great question, uh, Cleveland. Laurie, you and I, as people who've been covering education for a long time, I think have heard the word reading uh, and uh, uh, reading curriculum more than maybe any other, any other phrase. <laughs> but but uh, explain to Cleveland how much emphasis there is on reading, especially in places like uh, Detroit, which has really focused on those early years.
2: Sure. So, you know, there, there has been, you know, a huge focus on reading. Detroit um, in recent years has um, moved to a more phonics-based um, reading curriculum. Um, and I, I won't get into the, the the reading wars that have existed for probably 20 <laughs> plus years because yeah. it's, it's very complicated. Um, but um, a, a lot of districts are, are trying to, to provide more phonics instruction. I, I will say that the state's Um, Read-by-Grade 3 law, which, um, um, you know, it it was pretty controversial when it was passed in 2016. Um, One of the features of it, though, that I think most people agree with is that that it did require schools to invest in intervention for students who are struggling with reading. Um, That includes, you know, hiring reading coaches who work, you know, directly with students. They work one-on-one with kids who are struggling. Um, now, the controversial part of that, that law that, that could be changed this year with Democrats in control would require, you know, schools to hold back students um, who were not reading um, on grade level um, by the end of grade three. Uh, that that potentially will go away. Um, but but the, the fact that the, this law does put districts, you know, in a position where they have to provide that kind of intervention for schools. For students Mm -hmm. is important. Has that helped? You know, we haven't seen a huge, we haven't seen an increase in in reading scores um, um, in the time that this law has been on the books, Um, and then we've had a pandemic that has has had an impact, Um, but um, there's no doubt that the more interventions and more resources that are put in place to help students in the early grades with reading um, really helps. But there's also, you also have to look at, you know, early childhood education, how important that is for preparing students, getting them ready for um, a K-12 education, and, and Michigan has invested a lot of money in it, but there's still a lot of, um, uh, un, you know, insecurity in, in the system. Yeah,
1: yeah. Uh, Cleveland, uh, again, really appreciate the call and the great question. Let's go next to Deborah in Detroit. Deborah, what's on your mind?
4: Hi,
2: thank you, Steve, and thank you, Lori, for everything you do, uh, bringing it to our attention, all the things that are happening in education. I'm calling to just um, put out there the idea that as we work on equity and funding, it's really important that the State Board and the Department of Ed look at how schools are already spending the money they have. If you look at Bulletin ten fourteen, which ranks every school district, eight hundred and twenty of twenty-one of them, in terms of funding for each area, the state average for all instruction is sixty percent. If you go down the line, you'll look that some of them spend less than the one I found quickly today was thirty nine percent. But in the past I found that some spend only like seventeen percent on instruction.
1: Hmm. It's an interesting. That's a really interesting data point, Deborah. I'm glad you called and uh, and shared that, Lori. Uh, what's what's the response to her question?
2: Um, I, I I will. I, I think I will say this: um, the the education trust report that, that came out this week does. Uh, one of their their recommendations is to provide more transparency about how money is being spent. Um, the, the state doesn't. Um, you know they provide this information, but there's no, um, I mean, we're a local control state. Um, mm-hmm. you know, districts are, um, have uh, full discretion to spend their money the way they choose. And, and, and there's not a whole lot of state can do to step in and say, Oh, you're only spending 17% on instruction. You need to spend more. Um, there there's no sort of hammer that that comes down and says like, you must spend this amount of money on, on instruction. Yeah.
1: Okay. Um, Laurie Higgins, uh, Chalkbeat Detroit Bureau Chief, always great to have you here on Detroit Today. Thanks so much for joining us to talk about uh, this important uh, information and uh, issue in our schools.
2: Thank you for having me, Stephen. I appreciate it.
1: We're going to take a break. And when we come back, we're going to take a little break from education and talk about politics for a second. This was the first official week that Democrats were in charge in the legislature in Lansing. Rick Pluta, senior state capital correspondent for the Michigan Public Radio Network, is going to join us to talk about the bills that were introduced, to talk about the leadership that was elected, and the tensions. That are already on display between this new Democratic majority and Republicans who will have to learn to operate as a minority party in the House and in the Senate. Stay with us for more Detroit Today.
4: Did you know it costs $650 per hour to operate WDET? That's a few dollars more per hour this year than last year. One big reason is that WDET now pays our interns. We're leveling the playing field for underrepresented and low-income applicants to learn journalism, podcasting, audio engineering, and more. I'm Diane Sanders, and I coordinate the WDET internship program. We're training the next generation of young people for the future news and information workforce. Financial help from General Motors, Verizon, the Polk Foundation, and the Clarence and Jack Himmel Foundation helped us jumpstart our internship program. You can help with a tax-deductible gift to WDET. Learn more at wdet.org interns.
1: Detroit, today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson. And thanks for joining us today. This was the first week officially the Democrats were in charge in Lansing. And I don't think you had to be a political nerd to be really interested in what that looks like, what it seems to mean, and how the dynamics have maybe changed uh, in the state capitol. Joining us now to talk about that first week and what we saw. Is Rick Pluta? He is a senior state capital correspondent for the Michigan Public Radio Network. Uh, let's start here, Rick. Uh, what was uh, what from your perspective? Were were the highlights of this first week of Democrats being in charge?
5: Well, I, I the highlights are really the I mean the normal stuff. There was the swearing in and and the speeches that. Uh, you know, sort of mixed uh, cooperation, but with a, a little bit of you know. Here are how things are going to uh, change. I mean, let's not forget that uh, you know we have an African American man leading the uh, House of Representatives in Michigan for the first time in its history, and a female Senate Majority Leader leading the Senate for the first time in Michigan's history. So, you know, that alone is uh, you know that alone is notable. But you know, we are set up for undoing a lot of things that uh, Republicans have managed over the past four decades with full or partial control of the legislature and you know democrats made clear on day one that that will certainly um include the state's statutory abortion ban even though that's null and void under um the new um abortion rights constitutional amendment to the state constitution that uh, right to work is clearly on the table there will be pushback from republicans and business groups on that um you know and and uh you know, expanding the earned income tax credit, uh, for low income families, which, uh, strangely has wide bipartisan support, but, uh, because of the nature of legislative negotiations and, uh, the need for horse trading has never made it past the finish line. And so they, they've set some goals and, uh, expectations, but, you know, Republicans also made clear that for a lot of things that, you know, you want to get done, and let's not forget, you know, there's a uh, budget to be passed and some things that will require super majorities and Democrats have thin majorities, two votes in the House and uh, two votes uh, in the Senate. So, uh, you know, that, that there's going to have to be some reaching across the aisle to get things done.
1: Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I want to talk more about the dynamic between the two parties in, uh, in a second, but uh, I want to go back to this <clears throat> initial list of bills. Uh, that Democrats uh, introduced and, and will mm-hmm. almost certainly have uh, the votes to, to, to pass. Uh, it's an interesting mix of things, and there's been a lot of debate about what should be on that uh, initial list. Uh, right to work and abortion mm-hmm. are kind of hot-button issues that made yeah. it, but there, was, there were some really practical things that they, uh, that they said they wanted to do out of the gate as well.
5: Hmm. Um, yeah, that's true. Well, um, are you looking at anything in particular?
1: Well, I mean, I'm thinking of of uh, of the stuff that's not uh, that's not the sort of political hot potatoes. And of course, I'm I'm now scrambling to call up the story that I was reading uh, that <laughs> that that gave me the actual list. Uh, um, it, it just seems like. Uh, you know, there was so much argument uh, for for the last few months about what should be first, uh, mm-hmm. and I thought I thought they did a good job of kind of rounding it out.
5: Uh, uh, well, I mean, the EIT would certainly be one. Right. Um, there's also the pension tax that you know come into play. As a matter of fact, that's kind of you know an interesting one because that is one that Republicans will hang on their argument um, that. If you're going to um, do something vis-a-vis the earned income tax credit, uh, if you're going to do something regarding repealing the pension tax, which is, you know, uh, um, a fraction of the state's population, mm-hmm. well, let's go bigger. Let's look at things like the state's income tax rate, um, you, know, you know, that sort of thing, so um, you know, that's where Republicans are going to, you know, try and, and create these inflection points to, uh, you know, try and, and show middle-class voters where there are differences between uh, Republicans and, and Democrats. Very, you know, like you said, practical thing. Yeah. But that can, um, you know, also serve as, uh, um, you know, ways to highlight differences between the parties. And Republicans, you know, I mean, even... Gretchen Whitmer said, the governor said that, uh, you know, this is not a mandate election that, uh, you know, that that there's going to be bipartisan problem solving required. Um, And, you know, this is where Republicans are saying, like, not just, you know, calling for reaching across the aisle to get things done, but they're throwing down one, negotiating points, but two, as can be expected with tight majorities, making the case out of the gate why in the next election maybe voters will want to make some different choices on who's going to be leading one or both chambers of the legislature.
1: Sure. Uh, I'm talking with Rick Pluto, He's a senior state capital correspondent for the Michigan Public Radio Network. We're talking about the first official week of session Uh, In Lansing, in the House of Representatives and the Senate, the Democrats in charge of both of those chambers for the first time in almost 40 years. Uh, If you want to join the conversation, give us a call. Tell us if you have been paying attention to this week and uh, whether you were surprised by the things that happened or whether it has kind of played out the way you expected. 313-577-1019 is the number on the phones. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today, and we can include you on the show that way. Uh, So, Rick, I do want to talk about the dynamic between the two parties, uh, and I want Mm -hmm. to start with the vote for Speaker of the House. Uh, There was a little bit of controversy about some Republicans who – refused to vote for Joe Tate, the Democrat, the African-American mm-hmm. Democrat from Detroit, uh, who's going to be speaker. Uh, talk about how significant that is or, or whether it's significant and what some of the, the immediate consequences uh, of that tension were.
5: Um, well, let's just say that uh, Representatives Matic, Tara, Frisky, um, Regas, uh, DeSena, Hoadley, Shriver— and uh, Joseph. And those are the representatives who voted against Joe Tate um, for uh, Speaker of the House and violated a tradition that at least on the first day of the session, that there is an expression of a desire for bipartisanship on the first vote for who's going to lead the House once the majority of the majority caucus has made that decision. And that includes things like a seconding speech after the nomination has been entered mm-hmm. by the minority leader of the party, you know, which which happened. And so, I mean, these members basically threw down a gauntlet and said, we're not cooperating. We're not cooperating. We're not playing nice on day one. And, you know, we're seeing that um, the... the ramifications of that for those lawmakers in terms of uh, committee assignments. You know, we saw a smackdown over um, who gets to uh, uh, file the first bill of the session that Joe Tate, uh showed up to do that, which is his prerogative as speaker. And he was blocked by a Republican lawmaker who literally slept overnight to be, uh, you know, to be first in line. And it just, you know, it it, it mars that uh, a sense of, you know, we can cooperate on uh, mm-hmm. some things and that the minority will respect the prerogatives of the majority and the majority will, you know, you know, when it can, uh, you know, try to cooperate with the uh, with the minority. But you followed this for a while, Stephen. So, you know, it's the primary job of the minority, as Winston Churchill said, <laughs> is to block the wishes of the uh, majority, which is you know a a political statement and a you know a political reality. Yeah. But you know, I guess just to you know after being uh, um, rather loquacious about it, to uh, circle back that. um You know, it's maybe a trapping of democracy that on the first day you um, try to show a sense of unanimity, um, but they get to vote the way that they want to vote, and there will be, uh, you know, some consequences if they show that they're not, you know, willing to, you know, work across the aisle. Yeah, yeah. Uh,
1: Again, 313-577-1019 is the number here on the phones. Let's go to John in East Point. John, welcome to the show.
5: Thanks for taking my call, Mm Stephen, and thanks, as always, for the great conversation. Sure. Uh, I really wanted uh, to have us focus the conversation for a little while on the proposal to repeal the right-to-work laws in Michigan. If that uh, happens, we'll be the first state in the country to do such an action, and it's it's a really powerful um, governmental action on behalf of either of these political parties uh,
1: for for workers um. yeah, a great question, John. And as you point out, it has been a really long time i I saw a, a statistic this week that said we would be the first state in sixty years uh, to mm-hmm. repeal right to work. Um, uh, Rick this this was one of the the issues that. Um, I, I, I had I heard and was part of more discussions and arguments about than almost any other item that might have been on the agenda. And the, the question was whether you do this out of <laughs> or the Or not on the agenda. Or not, right? We
5: can, <laughs> as, we can explain
1: the joke. <laughs> that's right. As the former governor might have said. Um, you know, uh, doing, you know, th- there's a provocation, uh, I think, mm-hmm. to, to, to putting it on <clears throat> the initial uh, on the initial list. And, and, uh, you know, in the end they did put it on, but, but they did it with other, with other things. Uh, Talk about the significance though, of including it here on this initial list.
5: Oh, sure. Well, I mean, one of the key constituencies of the democratic party in Michigan and across the country is uh, unions and Democrats are expected to uh, advocate for union rights. And, you know, going back, you know, 40, 50 years that, um, you know, Democrats who are, you know, who are opposed to union rights and creating more powerful unions eventually left the party. I mean, that's the importance of, of the, you know, of unions within the Democratic coalition, that UAW is a Key player in determining who the nominees are going to be, and this is the Michigan Democratic Party you know remember Michigan cradle of the union movement, you know putting a stake in the ground and saying that uh, it starts here that uh, we are going to work to reestablish the um primacy of unions in the uh, you know in the workplace
1: yeah. Yeah. Uh, Quickly, uh, John on the east side has a question about film incentives. He says it was worked on in committee. He wonders if it's looking favorable. Might we go back to some kind of film credit here in Michigan?
5: Um, I seriously doubt that uh, we will go back to uh, film credits at least, you know, the way that they were under the Granholm administration, where mm-hmm. they were what was called refundable tax credits, you mm-hmm. do the stuff that's expected of you. To a certain point, not only will you get a tax break, but the state will actually write you a check They're a check, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. We might see a milder uh, um, you know, form of that, just like we would see for you know maybe some other business activity.
1: Yeah. Okay. Uh, Rick Pluta, Senior State Capital Correspondent for the Michigan Public Radio Network. Uh, always great to have you with us. Thanks for joining.
5: Always great to be with you.
1: Okay, we're going to take another break. And when we come back, we're going to go back to talking a little about education. Pamela Pugh, who was elected president of the Michigan State Board of Education Tuesday, is going to join to talk about her agenda as work gets started for her in Lansing. Stay with us for more Detroit Today. <music> This is Detroit Today on 101.9 WDET. I'm your host, Stephen Henderson. This past Tuesday, Democrat Pamela Pugh was elected as president of the Michigan State School Board. She said she would work closely with the Michigan Department of Ed to see that many of her legislative priorities, including gun control and free lunches, are enacted in our state. Pew is a public health expert and an environmental health consultant, and she was first elected to the school board in 2014. We've got her here with us to talk about what she thinks are the biggest challenges facing students right now, what she makes of the impact of the COVID pandemic, and how she and the board will work with the state legislature to implement change. Board President Pamela Pugh, welcome to Detroit Today. Good morning and thank you for having me this morning. Absolutely. Uh, Before we get into the weeds of education policy, uh, tell us for those who don't know uh, what the state school board does and what kinds of power uh, the state school board actually has to have an effect on uh, students in the classroom.
0: The State Board of Education by State Constitution uh, here in Michigan is responsible for K through 12 education across the state um, and hiring the State Superintendent of Public Education who heads up the Michigan Department of Education. Uh, We work closely with uh, the department, work closely with the legislature to put forward an agenda to make sure that our children uh, have the best um, trajectory towards success uh, as it relates to education, Um, as it relates to the the power of uh, the State Board of Education. I mean, you know, everyone has their thoughts and opinions there. Um, Of course, some of the powers were rolled back um, under the Engler administration. Um, However, the State Board of Education has an opportunity and has continued to be a very strong voice, very strong advocate. Uh, making sure that we're working closely with the legislature um, and uh helping them to through testimony through um speaking as a unified body through resolutions and statements um and outlining um as mentioned and as we started the the agenda uh for our children's education here in the state of Michigan mm.
1: so uh let's talk about the pandemic what it changed about education in our state and how it challenges us now as we're just, you know, really getting back to everybody being in person all the time in, in every school. Uh, what, what are your priorities as we come out of this?
0: As we, um, come out of this global pandemic, a pandemic that none of us have ever experienced in a lifetime, um, has gone on to be, uh, a pandemic that, um, is worse than any that that we that we know of, and you know, really, the focus is on making sure that our educators have the proper supports to be able to support our children, support their social and emotional needs as we move towards some sort of normalcy. Obviously, our children um, took a great loss by not being able to come together um, because of the pandemic. Um, and we knew that when when the decisions were being made um as to uh, how do we uh, move forward and um weighing uh, the risk uh, of what what would happen by our children not being able to come together. We also knew that we were seeing lives lost. We also know that this pandemic has caused the loss of parents and caregivers of our children. It's um caused our children to see great loss of life and great. Um, of family members and also uh, illness um, in a way that they've never seen it before. So the main focus is on making sure that our children are healthy socially and emotionally and uh, making sure that they have educators uh, in front of them that that can help them through this. And um, definitely want to make sure um, that the materials that, that they may not have gained through um, online education that we're also making sure that well of course it's important that that we regain our footing there
1: mm-hmm. uh, What about these gaps uh, between uh, students who live in impoverished communities uh, and and other students in our state they got worse during the pandemic and for years in Michigan we've been talking about, that gap uh, you know the, the the way it's existed and the things that need to be done what's what's your take on the ability now to really focus on it and and close that gap?
0: right. These are gaps that that existed um, for for decades um for for some time. Um, we could talk about um, how. Michigan has underfunded uh previously education, especially in those districts that need it the most. Um, whether we're talking about high poverty areas, whether we're talking about areas where there's greater um, English language learners or um a greater percentage of children with special needs. Michigan has has been at the bottom of, of the 50 states as it looks as we've looked at funding. So um, we definitely commend uh, Governor Whitmer for the fiscal year 23 budget for the historical budget, but we know that we're still uh, behind when it comes to digging ourselves out of uh, previous administrations and, and how that funding was made. So one, we need to make sure that we have funding. We need to make sure that we have, again, educators um, in those classrooms so that our classroom sizes are Um, set up in a way that that the children can can get attention. We need to make sure that children have materials uh, in their classrooms and curriculums um, that uh, support uh, all children to learn uh, and reflect all children. Um, So there's, you know, we go on and on about the, um, about our priorities, but um, on Tuesday, State Superintendent Michael Rice, Dr. Michael Rice, Uh, did lay out uh, very thoroughly uh, the agenda for the Department of Education, and the State Board of Education definitely supports and will be backing and advocating uh, those priorities. Mm
1: -hmm. Uh, Again, 313-577-1019 is the number here on the phones. Let's go to Daniel in Detroit. Daniel, welcome to the show.
3: Hey, thanks for having me on, Mm -hmm. you know. um, I've got a uh, uh, my wife is actually set to retire uh, next January um, from teaching in Michigan and and I've, I've been paying attention to you know everything that's going on I hear her stories coming home all the time and the biggest problem that she has right now are cell phones in the classroom. kids cannot focus for five minutes without picking up their cell phones. She, they're sneaking them under their desk. They're, mm. they're just, they, they can't put them down. The other problem she's having is the attitude of the high school kids that she's teaching right now is, is just terrible. They're just, uh, they don't respond well to any kind of criticism or corrections or directions. They're just, uh, half of them aren't willing to participate some of the time. But um, so the cell phones in the classroom is a big problem. Um, The other problem that we have in Michigan that we're just feeling the effects of right now are the Republicans have been in charge of the purse strings for so long. Mm -hmm. And they've really taken it to the teachers union for supporting the Democrats. Now I'm an independent that leans to the left, so I can see both sides of the coin the um but the the democrats that were in charge of the state of michigan for so long have um diminished the compensation to a point where nobody wants to be a teacher mm. i'm paying i have a business Daniel, right it's now. A,
1: I, I don't want to cut you yeah. off but i want to yeah. make sure we can get back to uh, the, the the school board president to answer and we'll we'll run out of time if i if i don't uh, do that but but i think those are those are really interesting issues you've raised especially this question of, of compensation. Uh, Pamela Pugh, I'll give you a chance to to respond. The cell phone in classrooms thing, I, I didn't know cell phones were allowed in classrooms, but uh, it's been a long time since I uh, had to had to think about that that issue in, in the context of public schools.
0: I do hear that it's an issue. I don't think that they are allowed in many of the classrooms. Of course, we want to make sure that we have safe classrooms, which is a, a priority of ours. And um, I know that that's always a concern for parents, making sure that um, children have a way to uh, communicate with with uh, them. Um, so I know that local districts grapple with that, and it's something that they they are grappling with. And uh, but I I did not know um, that they were allowed, but. A, but, I would bet that they're ending up in the classroom and something that our local districts are,
2: mm-hmm.
1: are
0: having to to deal with.
1: Mm-hmm. Uh, what What about the pay issue for teachers that Daniel raises? it's uh, it's a constant issue, and and he's right. Um, we We haven't uh, done as much as maybe we could have on that issue.
0: Absolutely. You know, you mentioned that my background is public health and um, how I got to the board table. Was really tuning into this issue around education some years ago. When my best friend was taking pay cuts, and um, she was a chemical engineering major, such as myself, but had a calling to go into the classroom. And um, after years of teaching, uh, took cuts to her health care, took cuts to to pay, um, and it really, really um, um, hurt her daily life. Um, so we are digging out of. Uh, uh, previous administrations and the, prioritized, uh, the dismantling of our education system, the lack of prioritization of our children. And so at this point, we really are focused on um, making sure that that historical budget that was put through um, that we can continue to build on that. We know that we also need to match funding with with policy, mm. um, and so good to see that we have uh, policymakers that that I know. Uh, when you look at Dana Polanke, who will head up the uh, Senate Education Committee, who is a, a former teacher, um, who knows the importance of making sure that educators are adequately paid adequately respected uh, when it comes to evaluations and how we evaluate our teachers, that we're evaluating them based on how they care for our children, nurture our children and are educating our children uh, versus just test scores.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Um, Okay. I want to quickly give you a chance to talk about your focus on free lunches. We've only got about a minute and a half left, but I think that's such an intriguing uh issue to, to to take up and I, I feel like we don't talk enough about uh kids who are hungry and and who need who need to be fed when they when they get to school um talk about your focus on that issue
0: right now while I'm talking, my stomach is growling and so you know we we know you know it's really not a joking matter when it comes to our children um our children need to be able to focus, Um, on their education. They should not have to be concerned about uh, whether or not they're going to be able to eat. They should not be concerned about being embarrassed because they don't have um, the money uh, to eat. And it shouldn't be a question. It shouldn't be a question whether this child um, has funding or, or that one does not. We should continue the universal Um, free uh, breakfast and lunch uh, for for children. Uh, We also know that parents um, have busy schedules. We have parents that are working more than one job to keep up uh, the income that they have. And so that takes away time for children to have square meals. And so it should not be a question um, that all children have access to. Uh, free meals uh, while they're at school. And we know uh, that, that that helps them to be more focused on what they need to be focused on and, again, not be stigmatized um, if if they're unable to to pay for a lunch mm-hmm. or breakfast. Mm-hmm.
1: Okay. Well, uh, Pamela Pew, congratulations on being elected a school board president, and thanks so much for coming on to discuss your plans with us here on Detroit Today.
0: Thanks for having
1: me. That is going to do it for us this week. Come back on Monday when we are going to talk with a scholar and former police officer who's been looking at where and how police culture is shifting across the country. Also on Monday, it is MLK Day, and we will be playing the full version of his I Have a Dream speech. This is 1019 WDETFM, Detroit's NPR station. Your connection to news, music, and conversation. We'll talk again on Monday.